Before I uh, start, I have two or maybe three announcements. First is that it is unbearably hot up here, and my head turns to a Brillo pad when that happens, so no one is allowed to laugh at my hair. I cut my own hair last night because <laughs> it was getting so bad, and I, I just looked in the mirror and I thought, I have to cut it. So my daughter cut the back, and I cut the top. I cut the top part this morning, and the rest of it I just cut on my own. I think I did a pretty good job, frankly. So. Um, but it still looks pretty much like a Brillo pad. Second thing is that my voice is, you've got to pray for me because my voice is really going out. And I've got another sermon to do after this one at Robert's Church. Uh, and uh, in fact, I want to encourage you, if you can go to that, go to that. Uh, in fact, if you'd like to preach for me, feel free to because my voice is going out. I, I, my daughter was in, a, in the regional track meet last year or yesterday. And she was in a very, very close race. And... Uh, when the races are close, uh, my voice goes, you know, come on, you know. And she is going to state. She won, so I thought I'd throw that in there. But, uh, yeah, just, see, the screaming helps. But it really, I really should know better. I, I don't know why they schedule these days, the, these races, the day before church. They ought, ought to have more consideration for pastors. Um, but anyways, um, that... Robert is, Robert's ministry, Robert Bob, many of you know him. He's a, he's a great man of God. I teach with him at Bethel, and he's just a gem. Um, but he is, is starting this ministry to the people of Ghana. But it's not only to the people of Ghana. Uh, some songs are going to be in, in the language of Ghana, whatever that is, Ghanaese or whatever. Uh, but uh, most of it will be in English. And unless God gives me a really great gift of tongues, my sermon will be in English. So <clears throat> if you can make it, it's at Calvary. And... A while ago, the Lord gave us a, a, a burden for, uh, to, to begin to move in a direction of a multicultural ministry, that the church might begin to exemplify some of the unifi- unity that the world just doesn't seem to be able to get. Um, and this is a piece of this, and so we want to come behind that. The third announcement is that there will be next Sunday night, for all who are interested, uh, a, a church meeting, a town meeting, uh, in, in the wake of, of Paul's resignation last week. Um, some people, we, I, we got five or six faxes and, and several phone calls of people who are asking very good questions that we are eager to answer. Um, questions about uh, where the church is going. Um, questions about what, what is the status of the Constitution. Um, what on earth happened to the, uh, the first annual church meeting that we were supposed to have last March, uh, where the membership and the Constitution was supposed to be ratified and we were going to become an official church and all that. Uh, why didn't that take place, and when is it going to take place, and uh, how will Paul's position be filled, and what say will the people of the congregation have, and things like that. I can't tell you how eager we are to have an ongoing dialogue like that. Um, many times in church plants, when you start, there's sort of a kind of an autocratic mode of ministry. But when a church gets to this size, it just can't go, it can't operate like that. You need input. Uh, you need to hear how God's moving in people's lives. You need ideas from other sources. And we are very eager and have been very eager for that to happen. So Sunday night, next Sunday night, June 12th at 7.30. We would have liked to have had it earlier, but we want Truett Lawson, who's the executive minister of the Baptist General Conference, or of the Minnesota Baptist Conference, to be there. And he couldn't make it till 7.30. And so we'll go from 7.30. Uh, shouldn't take more than 15 minutes, I don't suppose. What do you think? Uh, now we'll, we'll try to get out by 9.00. Uh, so anyways, uh, just, and be, if you can't make it, be in prayer about that. If you can't make it, and yet you have a question that really is on your heart or you'd like to talk with us, you can either call us 
um, uh, at the church office, or uh, you can call me for the next couple weeks at Bethel, and I'll get back to you when I can, um, if you can't make it on, on Sunday night. But otherwise, be in prayer for that, because we want it to be an informative meeting and everything to be done decently and in order and things of that sort. I want to turn now to the book of Ephesians. We're going to start, ah, we're going to start uh, a series that journeys us through the book of Ephesians. And I want you to know that this is, this is how I like to preach. Uh, I, don't, I hate coming up with topics. <laughs> uh, we have, for the first 19 months of the church, been going topically because there are some foundational things we felt we had to cover, but that never comes natural to me. It was hard for me. I'd spend two-thirds of the time trying to come up with a topic, and then you've got to find the scriptures. And What sometimes happens is that you end up just using scripture to support what you would have said anyways on the topic. And I don't like doing that. What I, how I like to operate and how I've always preached has just been going into the verse, take verse 1, take verse 2, take verse 3, and just... I figured there's a reason why God inspired it to be in the order that it's in, and you miss that if you don't preach it in the order that it's in. So I'm excited about diving into God's Word. There's something that just can be done by savoring the Word of God, taking it bit by bit, piece by piece, chewing on it, uh, just savoring it, dwelling over it as, as a body, and going through this as fast or as slow as the Holy Spirit leads us. Probably more slow than fast, but that's good too. Let's not be in a hurry. We've got a lot of time. Maybe, and if the Lord comes back, it won't make any difference anyway. So I, I'm really looking forward to this. Sometimes preachers have a fear that if you preach just going right through the Word and you start getting into the Greek and start doing background stuff, that, that you lose people, especially you'll turn off seekers who are there, and you need kind of catchy, flashy titles to topics to, to hook them, to bring them, you know, how to fix your marriage or ten ways to uh, get rid of your kid or something like that. And... <clears throat> And there's a place for that, and if God leads a person to do that, so be it. But from my perspective, my conviction is that what the Lord tells preachers to do is feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. And so what I feel my job is is just to put out the food here. And there are some who can take little nibbits. There are some who can devour the whole thing. Everyone is at, at, at their different stage in life and whatever. But it's the Holy Spirit's job to apply that. It's the Holy Spirit's job to particularize it in your life. That's not my problem. That's God's problem. And I believe that if we show, by going through this systematic study of God's Word, we show unbelievers or seekers who are here something about how important this book is to us. It has the highest respect it could possibly have. It's the infallible Word of God. It's the one piece of meat, the one food that we have in our life. It's our rock. And so how fitting it is to every week just sit and go through the Word of God. It also means that you can't steer away from tough subjects because if the verse comes up, it comes up. It means that not every sermon is going to be a yahoo, wahoo, let's run the aisle kind of a sermon. Sometimes it's kind of like, you know, this thing, this verse really indicts us and we have to do something about it. Sometimes it'll just be teaching, but it'll always be God's Word. And, and my conviction is that every verse of the Bible is there for a reason, and, and it's just a matter of unlocking that reason, of, of discovering the secret power of the Word. And if I don't get preaching here pretty soon, we'll never get anything done. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Get used to that. One other thing. I challenge you with this. The Bible says a lot of places, hide the Word of God in your heart. Meditate on His Word day and night. Do you know that? A lot of times it tells us to do that. We don't do that very often. Most people do not make it a principle to hide the Word of God in their heart, to memorize God's Word, 
to memorize it, to, to commit it to memory. What a great opportunity here, folks. We can go real slow, so we got a lot of time, but I challenge you to do this. As we go through this, take the verses that we're considering, the week before we preach it, the week after we preach it, and commit those verses to memory. It'd even be cool if we all did it according to the same version. Now, I'll be preaching out of the NIV version. So if you have that version, I encourage you to memorize those passages. And the reason is because you'll find that as you just recite the Word of God in your mind as you're driving down the street and as you're walking down the halls or in your business place, the Word of God sows forth fruit in your life just by being there in your mind. So you take the first three verses and commit it to memory. Two weeks later, you take the next three verses committed to memory because that's where the church is. And you'll find that as you savor the Word of God in your heart, you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible says that that's the principle of transformation. And when you come on Sunday morning and I'm preaching out of the same Word you've been chewing on all week, you are going to get so much out of it. There'll be a yes in your spirit to what is being said because the Spirit's already been preparing you to hear it. So I, I challenge you to do that. We're not going to get a thermometer chart, a little button thing, have a contest here or there. We're not going to do that. But uh, just on your own, I, I challenge you to do that. Luther, Luther thought this was the key to Christian growth. Luther, the, the great reformer. He had the entire New Testament memorized in the original Greek. And why can't you do that? If he could do it, why can't you? We'll settle for the NIV. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here comes the punch. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is a treasure there. We're not going to get to it. I'm just going to tease you with it this morning, but there's a treasure there. This morning I just want to talk about who this book is written to, but there's a treasure there too. Let's pray for a moment. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this book. This book, Lord, I know is designed to take Christians like me and Christians like those of us in this place who are very ordinary people and turn us into supernatural warriors. It's designed for that purpose. I thank you for your word which feeds us to make us grow towards that end. And I thank you for your spirit that makes the word food to us, Lord. But it's not food unless your spirit is present. As you were present during the worship service, Lord, be present during this, uh, uh, this message. Anoint me, Lord. Give me the words to say. Give me the thoughts to think. Give me the heart to follow. That your word would go forth and find fertile ground in our eyes, in our ears, and in our minds, and in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Just a word about the Ephesians. This book is written around 60 AD to a series of churches that are about two or three years old. This isn't written to one congregation at Ephesus. It's to the, to, to the saints that are at Ephesus. But as you know from previous studies, if you've been here, the main church in the early church was not the collection together in a city of a bunch of Christians. It was uh, churches that met in houses, usually 10 to 20 people. And so a letter like this would be written to a, a given locale for all the people who are in house churches in those areas. And they would periodically come together when it was safe to do this and worship God together. 
But their main meeting was in the house churches, which is why we here at Woodland Hills are so emphatic on people getting hooked in to house churches, small groups, call them what you will. In any case, Paul's in prison in Rome, and he writes this letter around 60 A.D., three to five years after this, these churches had been founded. Ephesus was the most important seaport metropolis in all of Asia Minor at, in, in the first century. Asia Minor is roughly what we call Turkey today. And this was a very important seaport city. It was on, on an important trade route, and as often happens with, with metropolitan seaports and trade routes, there was at Ephesus a tremendous converging of different cultures, a converging of different uh, races, and converging of different religions. And Ephesus became sort of the New York or the San Francisco of, the, of Asia Minor. It was the place where a lot of different religious beliefs came together, and the Ephesians, the Ephesus, people who lived in Ephesus, came to be known throughout the ancient world for their involvement in the occult, for their involvement in superstition, in uh, witchcraft, in pronouncing curses, in having particular secret societies that were devoted to particular gods. They were a very religious people in a pagan sense of the term. You see this when you read Acts chapter 19, where we find Paul breaking the ground to do ministry in Ephesus. Um, in Acts 19, we find this happening. When Paul goes to Ephesus, he does more more, more often here than he did in any other ministry, he, he, he gets involved in deliverance ministries. He's casting out demons. He gets involved in spiritual warfare. Because wherever you have a high degree of the occult and divination and horoscopes and astrology and people opening themselves up to demonic presences, you're going to have a very heavy demonic influence. So Paul goes to Ephesus, which is very demon-orientated, and this comes out throughout the book, and he's doing all sorts of exorcisms. Now, what you find in Acts 19 is this. It tells you a little bit about the, 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 uh, the nature of this place. There are, there are some Jews there who also want to be involved in exorcism. They're not Christian Jews. They're, they're, they're non-Christian Jews. But they want to be involved in exorcism. Because in the ancient world, this was a profitable business. If you could convince someone that you got a demon out of them, you, you got money for it. So they, in fact, Luke names them in Acts, 6, in Acts 19. He called, they're the seven sons of the high priest Sceva. There, a piece of knowledge for you. Just remember that, memorize that. They see that Paul knows how to cast demons out really well, and they want that power. So they go around trying to they take demon-possessed people who are withering on the ground or what have you, and they try to cast demons out of them, and they cast them out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. That's what they'd say. In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches... We cast demons out. <laughs> Trying it. And Luke tells us one account where this demon talked back to the people. Demons can do that through the voice of the person. And the demon said, wait a minute, I know Jesus. And I know Paul, but who are you? <laughs> We're the seven sons of Sceva. And the demon goes, big deal. This is a paraphrase. But it does say, <laughs> yo, what's it to us? You know. The, 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 the person takes on a supernatural demonic strength and beats the tar out of these seven sons of Sceva. Just wastes them. Now here's the point I want you to note. When this happens, the Christians in Ephesus, Paul had already converted a good number of people, the believers in Ephesus get freaked out. And they run back to their nice Christian homes and they take out 
all these, these, these pagan scrolls, pagan artifacts, items of divination, horoscopes, astrology, things that were offered to idols and whatnot, and they bring them all to the center of town to burn them. They really learn a lesson that you're not supposed to mess around, with, mess around with demons, but that tells you that up to this point in their Christian walk, they'd still stayed involved in, also, in, in all their divination, astrology, occult practices. And here they bring them out and burn them in the center of the city. It's not always easy to convert people from their culture when part of their culture is so heavily involved in, 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 in a demonic influence and in the occult. But these Christians were involved in this. They brought them out and burned all of their literature. And Luke tells us that the whole thing amounted to about fifty dollars to $100,000 worth of, of material. Luke always makes his little kind of notes like that. Here's what I want us to note. Paul is writing this letter shortly after that incident, and he writes to them, and he says, to the saints that are at Ephesus. To the saints that are at Ephesus. The word saint in Greek is agioi. It comes from the word agios, which is the Greek word for holy. And the word agioi literally means holy one, to the holy ones, those who partake in holiness. And Paul calls these Ephesians, who no doubt are still, some of them at least, struggling with occult practices, divination, what have you. In fact, in, at Ephesus, they were known for having one of the seven wonders of the world. They had, they had this incredible temple to the, to the goddess Diana. That's how pagan it was. It was one of the, the ancient seven wonders of the world. And here these believers are filled with this paganism, filled with the occult. But Paul calls them to the saints. He calls them saints. In fact, what you've got to know is that Paul, whenever he addressed any letter to any believer, he referred to them as saints. We find out later on in the book of Ephesians around chapter 4, that will probably be around 1996, I suspect, but we'll see. But around chapter 4, we find out that these people were ordinary people. They wrestled with, with immorality. They wrestled, wrestled with pride. They had tendencies towards divisiveness. They had lust in their life. They had problems. Paul mentions them. He has to address them. But he still calls them saints. When Paul writes to Corinthians, you've seen churches with problems. Well, I'll give you a church with problems. It was the Corinthians. This, these people would get together, and they got drunk during communion. They'd use real wine. And they'd do it so much, they'd get drunk. In fact, that's why they'd do it so much, is so they could get drunk. Let's have communion every day. Let's have church every day. You know, and, I mean, this is just ungodly. This is so sim you know, simple-minded, ungodly stuff. But here they were. Paul calls them saints. They had one of their great church leaders sleeping with his stepmother. Paul calls them saints. Uninformed, foolish, childish, carnal, yes. But he still calls them holy ones. And so it is in all the letters. Even the Galatians. The, the Galatians got Paul more mad than you're ever going to find Paul being. He's so mad, he, 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 he's ready to spit. I mean, he's just, it really comes out. I, I can almost see his pen shaking when he's writing the letter to the Galatians. He's so mad. He's so mad because these Galatians, I mean, you thought the Corinthians were bad for getting drunk in church. The Galatians were worse because the Galatians were legalists. And nothing ticks Paul off like a legalist. They thought that by being circumcised, by doing a religious deed and making some religious observances, they had the audacity and presumption to think that they somehow could improve upon what God did for them on the cross of Calvary. And Paul is livid. He's livid. But he still calls them saints. He still calls them holy ones. And Paul, under the inspiration of, of the Spirit, is writing these letters. And God, in inspiring Paul, knows that we are, 2,000 years later, going to be reading these letters. 
And so these letters are addressed to us, and therefore we are being called saints. To the saints that are in Battle Creek, and in the Twin Cities, and in Woodland Hills. To the saints, the holy ones that are there. What I want you to see this morning, and it's very simple, but what I want you to see is that this book is addressed to you. And it's addressed to you because you are a saint. You are a saint. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. If you accept the teaching of God's word, you are a saint. You may be here and you have an unholy marriage. There are some here who have got marriages that don't reflect a lot of godliness and don't reflect a lot of love and don't reflect a lot of peace, but you're a saint. Amen. And there are some here who wrestle with unholy thoughts, but you're still a holy one. And there are some here that wrestle with unholy attitudes, but you're still a holy one. And there are some here who wrestle with unholy pride, but you're still a holy one. And there are some here who wrestle with unholy lust, but you're still a holy one. And there are some here who have un unholy habits and unholy lifestyles. But if you believe in the Lord, what I want you to hear is that Paul calls you, not me, sorry, not your mother, Paul calls you a holy one. You're a holy one. You are a saint. I grew, up, I, I grew up a Catholic, and I love Catholics. All Catholics here, I love you. But I grew up with a weird idea about what a saint it, what, is supposed to be, and I think it's pretty common. You know, the saints, I went to church every morning. Every morning I had to go. This is pre-Vatican II. Hyperactive Greg having, Greg having to sit in service where it's done in Latin. Can, can you picture a more excruciating kind of torture for a hyperactive kid than to put him in a church with nuns next to him, when the guy's up there talking in Latin, and you got to sit still, it's impossible. It can't be done. <laughs> but all around the church, there were saints. Saints. They always would stand like this or like this. And, and they were always holy. <laughs> I don't know what they were doing. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit said, now read him this. <clears throat> we have a newsflash from the Holy Spirit. There's a verse that says, the fan bloweth where it listeth, or something like that. <laughs> where was I? Oh, about the saints. Yeah, they're, they're... And they always were serene. They always were so holy. They always had halos over their head, you know, and, and they're always helping lambs or people or, or, or something or other, you know. That's why when I first saw Spock do this, I thought he was a saint. You know, always like, <laughs> oh, look! A Vulcan saint. <laughs> Mary was the epitome to me of what sainthood was. She was always serene. I just love statues of Mary with the little baby Jesus there. And her face was always so radiant, always so smiling, and so holy, and so pure, and so clean. And that's what I thought a saint was. So we call her Saint Mary, and Saint Joseph, and Saint Jude, the, the patron saint of lost articles, who I, I talked his, his ear off a lot. Um, but all these saints, and, and I had this image of what a saint was. I couldn't necessarily spell it out, but I knew one thing for sure, and that, and that is that I am not it. Whatever a saint is, I am not it, because saints don't do what I, what I do. I can't picture Mary. I mean, can you, I, did, did Mary, you know, the, the serene, the Virgin Mary. I, can you, did, did she ever throw dishes? You know, can, no one ever caught that on the newsreel, but they should have had it. Or did she, get, did, she, did she get as upset with kids as we get? You know, we're, we're just ready to... Did Mary ever swear? I wonder. I mean, just, you know, national... <laughs> did she ever... Wait, was she, wait, I can't picture her doing that. Or Mother Teresa. Think about Mother Teresa. I mean, she's going to be a saint pretty soon when she dies. I, Mother, does she ever just get so ticked off at the, the nimwits that she's got to work with that she just picks up a bowl of rice and throws it? Can you picture that? What if they got that on, on, on a newspaper? You know, here's Mother Teresa. Yeah. 
I've heard that she's a pretty strong-willed person. That, whatever a saint is, whatever your picture of a saint is, that is not it. Because Paul calls us saint, and we are not like that. What makes us a saint? And the question is this. How can we, whatever a saint is, we are it if we're believers, because Paul calls us it. And the question is, how can we, who do on occasion, mind you, sin? How can we nevertheless be called saints? How can I be called a saint when I just blew it last week? Actually, I don't have to go that far back to blow it. How can that be? The answer, I believe, is found, and we, we just got to tease you with this. The answer is found in the next verses. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I'm not even going to get as far as I got the first service. But I want to... Next, okay, next week, I hope no one from the first service comes to the second service because I'm going to repeat part of what I said in the first service because it's too good to leave. But what I want to leave you with this morning is this. Paul can call us saints because he's referring to us as we are blessed by God, not as we necessarily are in terms of our own experience. He can call us saints because we are blessed by God. He can call us holy ones because we've been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. He can call us holy ones because we've been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. What on earth does that mean? We'll talk about it next week. We've been blessed by God, and this is why we're holy, and this is why Paul can call us saints. As much a saint as St. Jude and St. Francis of Assisi and the Mother Mary ever was, we can be called saints because we've been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Here's what I want you to know. That Paul, in calling us holy ones, is referring to us as we are in the heavenlies. He's referring to us as we are in Christ Jesus. He's referring to us as we are recipients of every spiritual blessing that is in Christ Jesus. What are those every spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessings. Think about that for a second. There's none that's lacking. But one of those spiritual blessings is this. It's the gift of God's righteousness. God's righteousness. Unblemished righteousness. Spotless righteousness. It's the gift of holiness. It's a, it's a gift of compatibility with God. God gives it to you. It's not what you do. It's not what you've done. It's not what you achieve. It's a gift from God. And it occurs in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is referring to us as we are, as God sees us. Referring to us as we are because of what God has done. Because of the gifts he's poured on us. Because he's what, he, what he's made us to be. Paul's not referring to us. As we see ourselves, he's not referring to us as we experience ourselves. He's not referring to us as others maybe talk about us. He's not referring to us in terms of our self-esteem because in those areas, those aren't in heavenly places. Those are in your brain. Those are in the world. Those are in your family. Those are all around you. But what's true in heavenly places, what's true by God's word, what's true by definition with what God says is the case is that you're a saint. You're holy. You're as holy. You have the holiness of Jesus Christ within you. Maybe sometimes right now there's too much fog, too much pain, too much confusion, too much bad theology for you to see that right now. But, but you've got to write this in stone. Make this a central part of your thinking. Memorize this. Put it in your mind that what God says is true, even if it disagrees with everything else. Amen. What God says is true, even if it disagrees with everything else. The promise that we'll start with next week is that what is true about you because God says it, is predestined to be manifested in you. 
It can't help but happen. If, oh, I'm going to start preaching that part, and I, I want to quit right now. It's on to die. You have no idea how hot it is up here. We need about 17 more fans. So I, I have to hang on to this as the wind's blowing me. At another point. Let me, let me close with this word. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, that is to say you've never made a public profession of your faith where you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior and that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, if you, if you want everything that we just talked about to apply to you, every spiritual blessing to apply to you, you're wondering how do you do that, what, what hoops do you have to jump through, what are the catches, what are the, you know, the tasks, what are the obligations, it is simply this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's that simple. No hooks, no strings, no obligations. We don't ever have to see you again. Don't worry about this. You're not signing anything. We just want you to be saved for all of this to apply to you. And I implore you in the name of Jesus Christ, as we are dismissed, to come forward. And there'll be some people up here who would love nothing more in life than to just pray with you a one-minute prayer that makes all the difference. When you pray it, it applies. You're a saint. You're a Mother Teresa. You're, you're like the Virgin Mary. You're like St. Jude, St. Francis. No one's got one up on you because at that moment, God applies all the righteousness of his deity to you. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, I, I have a burden right now, especially to pray for someone who's here, Lord. I, I, I don't know anyone here like this, Lord, but I am impressed by your spirit that there are some this morning here, they know who they are who need you and need to accept you. And you, Lord, have a heart ready to explode with love towards them. I want to say, Lord, you're dying that they'll be saved, but you've already done that. Praise God. I pray, God, that you, by your gentle spirit, would bring them forward to accept you as their Lord and Savior that every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus would instantaneously be theirs. That they could walk out of here, Lord, like the rest of us, knowing that we know that we know that we're saints because of what you've done for us, not because of anything else, in spite of everything else, Lord. But you've said it so, and therefore it is so, and we stand on that promise. Call them forward in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week. For next week, this is the professor side of me. I want you to have memorized verses 1 through 3.